Welcome to Material Feels, a monthly podcast where we listen in on the intimate conversations between artists and their materials. Each episode focuses on a material, what it is, how people work with it. We spend some time with an artist, art educator, manufacturer, somebody who connects with that material every day. We visit studios, workshops, and sometimes supply closets. This time, we are going to dive into a whole new world, for me at least. It's completely different than last episode, when I was talking about my first love, clay, which I pretty much know inside and out. Before we delve in, some housekeeping. Material Feels is written and produced by your host, me, Catherine Monahan. Each episode is accompanied by an original piece of music created just for the show by my collaborator, Liz Delise. So make sure to listen all the way to the end. You can subscribe to Material Feels with whatever podcast app you use on your phone. The show is on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Play. Follow me on Instagram, Material Feels, for extra treats. And for show notes, which are full of links, resources, and extra information, check out www.materialfeelspodcast.com. I've been getting some feedback from episode one. A few people have mentioned that it kind of made them want to try clay for the first time, which made me really excited. If you tried clay after listening to my conversation with Matthew Duke of Kids and Clay, please, please, please get in touch with me. Email me at Catherine at materialfeelspodcast.com or message the podcast on Instagram. I would love to hear what your first experiences with clay were like. Now, let's catch the feels for our next material. I'm in Woodland, California with my friend Danielle, who I've just reconnected with in hopes of featuring her for, some of you guessed it, fiber. Specifically, wool. Hence the sheep. I'm Danielle Garber, and I'm a weaver and a coach and a teacher. And I, I do small batch production of handwoven goods. Danielle teaches weaving workshops at Every Thread Handwoven. She's a weaver, and she also has a background in woodworking. When we met up to talk about the podcast, she mentioned she was going to a wool mill in just a few days. Wide-eyed, I immediately invited myself. She didn't seem to mind. So what is the deal with fiber, specifically wool? I've never worked with it, but I do have some blankets passed down from family members. My closest friend growing up, Max, he had sheep in his backyard who would mysteriously lose their jackets every spring. Other than that, I'm a complete stranger to this material. Does the fiber you work with have a personality? Every material I work with has a personality. It's like every wool is different. Some wools I work with have a lot more elasticity, and if I wash them after weaving with them, they'll fluff up, you know, and, and it, they'll fill in the space and the fibers will actually grab onto each other. I remember when I was in weaving school working with linen, which is something that I had never worked with before. And linen is something that, it's a fiber that's worked with a lot in Swedish weaving. I remember that the temperature in the farmhouse and outside, um, it was a very hot day. And I remember that we had, so depending on what the temperature was, we were using starch 
or a dehumidifier mm. uh, because the it like threads were breaking. It was very fine, fine linen. Very um, sensitive to the environment. Like yeah, it has to be just so yeah, which was so interesting because I was so used to working with wool or cotton, but linen. I I almost feel like linen has the most personality, but maybe. I also feel that way. So in addition to wool, which comes from sheep, natural fibers are derived from other sources too, like llamas, bunnies, goats, camels, silkworms, hemp, flax, which makes linen, or cotton. And what material do you work with typically? Or right now, I Yeah. Guess. Well, um, I work with all different kinds of fiber. Um, most, I, I'm most drawn to wool. I just love it. <laughs> um, I mostly work with wool specifically. I'm really drawn to uh, more fibrous kind of scratchy wool. Mm-hmm. I always want to work with the soft wool, but I'm more drawn to more fibrous wool. Um, but I also work with cotton and linen, a little bit of cotton, which is a mixture of the two. Um, spun, both of them are spun together. When I ask Danielle what she likes about the fibrous wool, her eyes go kind of dreamy. It's just that it feels so structural and so tightly woven, but I will always just run my hand across the the weaving and you can just feel the fibers and there's a softness to it. There's like a contrast to me and I I just I I love to feel that. I've always been really drawn to very like the raw raw materials. So I've worked with wood and and weaving are the two things that I have been so drawn to. Um, and I just I like the the rawness of it. I love I love moving through the world, letting the land and the people and just the things that you interact with uh, kind of guide you. This connection to the animal, the people who work with the material, and the land is so intense in the fiber community. I understood it as a concept, but I really felt it when Danielle and I went on our excursion together to the Valley Oak Wool Mill. On our way there, I had no idea what to expect. We turn right onto a bumpy dirt road, drive past a house, follow signs for VOWM, V-O-W-M which stands for Valley Oak Wool Mill. One of those signs is shaped like a sheep, so double confirmation. Hi, you made it. That's okay. Okay, Markeo, Danielle, and Kathy. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So we're all here now. I can go ahead and start. Um, this is Valley Oak Wool Mill, and um, it used to be Yolo Wool Mill. That's Markeo. She's with six other people who are touring the mill today. They are knitters, weavers, a felter, and a gentleman who we learn is in the carpet industry. I'm the only one with no fiber knowledge, but my microphone makes me look important, so people probably just assume I'm part of the club. The wool mill consists of two structures out in the middle of a large plot of land that's teeming with birds. I can't see them, but I can definitely hear them. One structure houses the various machinery that one needs to card and spin fleece into yarn. The other is where Marqueo scours or cleans incoming fleeces. These machines are huge. 
They are powerful and complicated looking. In the back corner of one of the structures, Markale has stacked various spare parts, gears and nuts and bolts and various tools for when the machines falter. Bobbins of yarn are suspended from the ceiling, but amidst all the machinery and the plastic bags full of fleece and spun yarn, for a second, it looks like there's spider webs everywhere. And that makes sense. I mean, this place kind of reminds me of a barn that I would play in as a kid. But when I look closer, I realize that no, these are little pieces of fiber, leftover hairs clinging to surfaces, some repurposed by clever spiders, the ceiling beams, the Christmas lights that are strung in the entryway, the machines themselves. Like a bloom of lichen, everything had a dusting of little curly fibers from years of wool coming through the mill. And just like people, other living things had found use in it, resulting in hybrid webs and woolen bird nests. We aren't even at the weaving part of this episode yet, just the way that wool is processed from fleece to yarn. But this was super fascinating, and because so few people actually see this process, I'm going to break it down for you. Different animals produce different sheens, colors, lusters, and fiber lengths. The people who care for the animals bring in the fleece after shearing day with instructions, and then the team at the mill, aka Mark Hale, the one-woman wonder, washes the fleece, dries it out, picks out any large veg matter, runs it through a gigantic carding machine that is about the size of a train car. This is the machine that gets all the poofy fibers going in one direction. Yes, I just said one direction. Then, another machine turns the carded wool into something called roving, basically airy poofy cords of pre-yarn. The roving frame, another machine, then spins those cords into a one-ply yarn. If the customer wants two-ply, another machine twists the yarn together for double thickness. It became clear to me that there was also an intimate relationship between Markale and the machines throughout the mill, a kind of hyper-awareness. Someone else on the tour actually pointed out this connection. A gentleman in the carpeting industry, who has been in a lot of more industrial-sized mills back in Georgia, shared a story. So the, when it breaks, when it breaks, they'll see a, they'll see a fiber just kind of sitting there mm -hmm. like this. Yeah. And they'll know that that, you know, they'll come back down through the line and then they'll, they'll reset it, it, get it going again. She's working on one and just intuitively she just goes like this and just fixes this one and walks down about mm -hmm. 10. Yeah, like yeah. And then just, she could hear it or it yeah. just, and it was, it's, everyone's here wearing ear, earplugs. You could hear that room from a mile away because it's just when they're running, it's just this one sound. And mm -hmm. I don't know how she hears the one, but somewhere in that, that, that vibration sound, she'll go, she just knows. Yeah. Each material has kind of its own culture that comes along with it. And with any culture, there are norms, special brands of humor, new vocabulary words. For instance, uh, here, Markale is explaining how she washes the fleeces. So it's in the open tub, is it just soaking versus... Like, soaking, but also I think it has more of an opportunity to kind of, like more of it gets stretched out as opposed to being kind of condensed but deep. 
Um, It just is much better for things to actually get out of the wool if it has more space to go wide instead of deep. So that's that's what I would guess on why that is. It's like if you're laying in the tub and your hair just kind of gets to open up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) As opposed to kind of trying to wash it in like a five-gallon bucket or something. Yeah. Yeah. You guys yeah. understand that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's what I experienced. Exactly. You need a lot of space. <laughs> well, this is like this. When it gets wet, watch out. Yeah. One of those sponges, it just grows. Yeah. Like a mermaid. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll... Um... Markel brought us full circle back to the front of the mill, where there were a bunch of twisted skeins of finished yarn in various shades of gray, tan, and white. The group perked up immediately. And this is, I think, a merino alpaca blend. So if you heard me say, I don't do fine wool, merino is fine wool. Yeah, merino is lovely. Yeah. So um, I don't do the merino, but she sent it to Sherry to get washed and carded. My card is... This is when it happens. The first person to get the skein touches it ever so gingerly, tenderly, ooing and awing. New Mexico yeah. has a lot of churro. And, yeah. Yeah. And they've got like a meal specifically, specifically for, for churro. churro. Yeah. 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 They have a little lady. Almost everyone did this. Yeah. Buried their face in the yarn and then passed it along to the next person. No one thought this was strange. Well, I did a little, but I was also kind of moved. It reminded me of how people are around babies and smelling its newborn head for that fresh baby smell, cooing, enthralled, not self-conscious at all. I looked at the fiber around me. I could tell that there were all these mystical connections between the people who work with the material, the material and the animal, the earth and the people, the machines and the people. I mean, I felt like a tourist who hadn't even tried to learn simple phrases like, where is the bathroom? So when they passed the yarn to me, I smiled and I touched it reverently, but I couldn't bring myself to put it on my face. It would have felt like I was mimicking them would have felt hollow. Maybe I'll get there. In that moment, I was still an observer. But there's also something about it being just more connected, you know, to the things that, like, I think about the things that we wear and we don't know where they come from. I think about yeah, just how there's such a disconnect from the things that we interact with on a day to day. And when I found weaving, it was on this bigger adventure of, of me really trying to connect more with my life, the way that I lived. And so when I when I was trying to figure out what to name my business or what I do in my studio, every thread hand woven has to do with connection. It has to do with connection to the materials that we interact with. It has to do with connection with our creativity. It has to do with like connection to what, what, what we interact with. And so as I'm moving into becoming a coach and being a teacher, uh, which for me is being a guide, every thread hand woven has the perfect metaphors. You know, weaving is just such a beautiful metaphor for how we engage with our lives it asks the question or acknowledges the answer to the question that every thread was handwoven, that every single thread, like you can't weave a piece of fabric without touching every single thread, Mm. you know? 
it's wound, it's threaded, it's, um, it's threaded multiple times on the loom. We weave the fabric of our lives. Back in Danielle's studio, I get acquainted with the weaving aspect of working with wool. This means meeting all seven of her Swedish looms. The looms look like majestic boats with pulleys and wooden parts. They are set up with threads of yarn stretched across them, tents, ready for someone to sit down and begin weaving. The threads that are already on the loom are called the warp. What you weave into it, the horizontal threads, that is the weft. Danielle points out all the parts of the loom, and if you thought we were learning a new language at the mill, that was just the beginning. Shuttle, quill, or bobbin, beater, reed, shafts, or harness, counterbalance, pulley, horses, um, bra, okay, <laughs> shaft holder, tie-on bar, warp roller beam, lambs, pedals, leaf sticks, ratchet, treadles, magic string, shaft pins, hanging beater, warping mill. Yeah, it's a lot to learn all at once, but there's no quiz at the end of this show, so don't worry. Once you understand the system of how the loom works, the most important thing is to feel the material. So obviously I had to try weaving. I'm not going to talk the talk without throwing the shuttle, so to speak. Well, and because the the threads, they're interacting with each other. So they need, they need space. So there's, as the weft is going through the warp threads, when you put the weft through the shed, that weft needs to have a little bit of extra give to kind of compensate for that under over under over if that makes sense um yeah but so because of that different materials some have a little bit more elasticity mm. or they're a little more slippery or some are thicker or thinner and so there's just a the pulling on the thread and how it's placed will be different again this makes l little to no sense if you haven't sat in front of a loom before but let's try Imagine you are sitting on a bench in front of a hundred or so strands of yarn. The yarn is pulled taut, and it is in a few different colors. This is the warp. Picture your favorite colors laid out in a pattern you've designed. Reds, soft yellows, white, blue. Your shoes are off, and your bare feet are on the treadles, which are sort of like organ pedals. When you press on different pedals, some of the strands are lifted up, and some aren't. Each pedal controls a different set of strands. This is what makes the pattern. When you press on the pedal, then you push the shuttle, which carries the yarn, through. I just kind of wrap it around. First, Danielle teaches me how to thread the bobbin. And then I spin it to catch it. Oh, whoa. What is this? Yep. Okay. You're on the third treadle? Okay. Pushing it through. Oh, crap. Yeah, and you and you once you got more comfortable, you would actually it would fly right across. Okay. It takes hashtag goals. Okay, and then I <laughs> don't have it be up too much. Where are the? Oh, I see. And okay. then I'm like placing it, but then I'm pushing it harder. Oops, that was probably too hard. That was that was more hard than it needed to be. Okay, okay. I'm not gonna lie to you guys. Sitting in front of the loom was kind of nerve wracking at first. I felt this anxiety that somehow I was going to do something wrong and the entire thing would fall apart. I also began to have these like fun little flashbacks to second grade when I still hadn't learned how to tie my shoes. Danielle assured me multiple times that there were no knots in weaving, but 
thread can get tangled and tangles can become knots and boom, I'm having to untie a very complicated shoe. At least that's my worst nightmare of what would happen. Loom explodes, tying shoes. It was hard to focus on the task at hand with all of that going on in my brain. Apparently I'm not the only one though. I think the biggest challenge is the first half of the day is getting used to uh, getting used to how to create that specific fabric. So it's awkward, you know, it's like, how do I beat this down? Like how do, cause it's, it's like you, it takes time to learn that fiber and how it interacts. While I'm teaching, it's not just about the weaving, but it's about our relationship with what we're learning. Just allowing ourselves to actually get into relationship with our creativity and allowing ourselves to create. That there's something about becoming comfortable with the process. Sometimes somebody is working, like every, every class is a, a different kind of material. It's, the process is similar, but it's not necessarily the same because the material might actually, you know, you might not beat it down as hard, or maybe you create a different tension or whatever it is. What I find is that some people naturally come in and they just feel the fabric. And then there's always this beautiful moment in every class, every creative class that I've ever taught, where things get silent because it's almost like that, like biting your tongue, like I'm like really concentrating. And then there's just this moment where stories start to happen, storytelling starts to happen. And it's because people have gotten into the flow where they're not overthinking it, they're feeling it. So then they can start talking or like just and start And then chatting. people start sharing. So they're not so focused. It's like, it's almost like, you know, driving your car. You're not necessarily paying attention, but you are very aware of what you're doing, but you're kind of like on autopilot. But I, I think it's because there's, there's like a feeling to it. And I, I think there's a comfort that happens. I didn't weave for very long, but I was surprised when I looked back at how much I had added to the pattern. If I got more comfortable and took more time, could I make a blanket of my own? I ran my hands over the surface of the fibers. Danielle tells me if I keep going all the way to the end, something miraculous happens. Pulling a fabric off of the loom because it, it rolls onto this beam and you don't really see it. It's like you're weaving it, but then it's going under the loom and it's weaving onto this little beam. I cut it. Yeah. It's like it's done and you you loosen the tension. And I, I, every single time people are like, are you sure you cut it here? Because it's like the whole time you're creating tension. You want to keep everything. It's like you don't want to cut any threads. Mm. And then it's like you're going to cut it. And when people pull it off and it just rolls off, it's like... For me, it reminds me of when I was doing photography. When I was younger, I uh, used to work in the dark room, and I would be in there for hours and hours and hours. And when a photograph would just expose, it's kind of like that. It's like this magic moment where you you pull out a fabric that you created. It didn't exist oh my God. before. <laughs> I love that. I love it too. And it's just the joy on people's faces and just like in their bodies and then they touch it and they hold 
I imagine Mark Hale, or someone like her, scouring and spinning that wool into yarn. The person who sheared the sheep, looking after them, calling them by their name. The animals roaming the land, grazing, living their lives. After shearing day, the weight of their wool lifted for another season of growth. On a minuscule scale, I had my wool-to-the-face moment. Instead of a far-off, dreamy look in Danielle's eye, a wistfulness in her voice, I now have a sense of that dream, and it's not so far off. Looking around at the looms now, I don't see complicated boats or pianos silently waiting for the right chords to be struck. Now, the looms in Danielle's studio remind me of altars, sacred spaces where people can come and sit and spin prayers, tell stories, share memories, thread by thread, hand-woven. There is a popular narrative around people who dedicate their lives to a particular creative endeavor. This idea that they have natural-born talent. They were always good at it. Or they always knew they would be a blank. Artist, creative maker, whatever. Sometimes that is true, but sometimes it's as simple as a chance encounter and being open to what that chance encounter inspires within you. Brought you to weaving, or like when did your journey begin? And yeah, so weaving was actually something that I found by accident or not by accident, depending on how you look at it. Um, I had moved down to Argentina and I actually had moved down there to uh, or was to build a, a house and to start to farm and to connect with the land, but it ended up being that I was actually stepping out of what my life was. I was actually stepping into a new, I don't know, just exploring new ways to live. Um, and so when I first, when I was down in Argentina, I ended up walking into a weaving shop. I didn't know anything about it. And it was really cool because this weaving studio, it was a shop space where they sold their goods, but they had looms in the space. And it was just fascinating. I think because it was wood and it was, <laughs> it was the wooden looms. And I was just touching the fibers and I didn't really speak Spanish and they didn't really speak English, but we were just like so happy to be in each other's space and they were showing me things. And when I came back to the Bay, I was telling my friend about the weaving studio that I had come to. and. She was like, oh, my God, there's this adorable weaving studio that I've driven by for years in Berkeley. And so she drove me by it and I was just like fingers and like nose pressed against the window and <laughs> ended up uh, I was like, can I come in now? <laughs> but it was closed and I contacted the woman and I ended up in that weaving studio the next day and just started weaving. Maybe those chance encounters are the magic strings of our lives that invite us on a new path, weaving into something else. And what I've learned from these conversations is that in addition to chance encounters and an open mind, there is another key variable that makes us more likely to act on the creative impulses all of us have. When we witness adults who are living their creative truth so hard, they make an instant impression. Hence the Mr. Rebetzes and Matthew Dukes of the world. These role models are crucial points of inspiration. Matthew Duke was our first guest on the show. He's in the episode about clay. Mr. Abetz was my ceramics teacher in high school. Episode one is dedicated to him. I 
I think that my childhood was kind of, I witnessed my dad. He's such a creative person, but I, I wouldn't say he's an artist. He's a, a maker. Um, he's a designer. I, I don't know if it was an inspiration from him or not. Like, I think it was, it was inadvertently seeing him working in process and building things. He was always constructing things. What kind of things did he build? He was really obsessed with electronics and electricity. He would make computers and machines from scratch. Um, so he would work with metal, he would work with wood, he would create circuit boards, he would make tube amplifiers from nothing, you know. Or... And would he make like make them with an invention in mind, or was it like just how does this connect to that and what's the... Well, I think when he was younger, it started with how does this connect to that and now it's there's always a reason. You know, he's always creating something very specific. Last time I went back home, he's like, I, I made the CNC router <laughs> from scratch. <laughs> like he had created the circuitry for it. He had, you know, made all, he had like handmade all of the metal pieces for it and pulled pieces from other things. And so I think I was inspired by that. Um, I didn't work with him much when I was a kid. Like, I just kind of was an observer from afar. I am intrigued because I did not see myself as a creative, and it's actually been a challenging thing to step into the creative world for me. You know, it's it's been a process. I still do not consider myself an artist. I see myself more as a craftsperson or a designer. I don't know why I don't relate to the word artist. I like to construct things. I think that's why um, weaving and woodworking have just, I, I, yeah. Hearing Danielle talk about her father reminded me of my grandfathers, who were both creative people in very different ways. Grandpa Monahan fits the typical definition of artist. He was a designer for IBM. He retired early to draw, paint, and write in the piney wilderness of Maine with my grandmother to keep him company. He made lots of paintings and lots of sculptures. He always signed them and dated them. This makes him easier to label as an artist, though he never showed his work or sold it, another expectation that is sometimes put upon the artist identity. My other grandfather, Grandpa Durr, worked in an office. No artistic background or training, but the second 5 p.m. hit, he was off the clock and in his own version of a studio. He built tables, fixed toasters, invented a golden retriever-proof doorknob and a special bottle holder for getting the very last drop of sauce out. He even built a miniature house for his children, a playhouse, complete with running water, a record player, and a sloping roof to make it look like it was old. Non-artist artist types are really important to remember and honor and name. So many people I know grapple with this term artist that and the word creativity. What are the labels for people who make things and why are we comfortable with some but not others? This isn't uncommon in various creative communities. Regardless of skill, medium, passion, or poise, different kinds of people shy away from the term artist. Maybe it's because we want more specific language to describe what we do. Is it art or craft? Are we makers or artists? Designers or doodlers? Maybe it's because the term artist has been put on a pedestal ever since the Enlightenment and we feel bashful about putting ourselves in the same camp as Michelangelo. Maybe it's because being an artist means different things to different people. 
In addition to some folks not identifying with the term artist, there is also a kind of mystique around the word. If you do call yourself an artist, specifically a working artist, and that is your livelihood, when someone asks, what do you do? And you answer, I'm an artist. The response ranges. It can be disbelief, surprise, confusion, or overly saturated admiration. This reaction really makes creative work seem wild and crazy, unattainable for everyday people. I would call my tinkering grandfather an artist. He made things, artfully. He constructed something out of nothing. He made ideas come to life. I want to call Danielle's father an artist. I want to call Danielle an artist. Constructing things and creative thinking is just part of who we are as humans. But if I introduce this podcast as honoring the intimate relationship between humans and the stuff they love, no one would have any idea what the show is about. Yes, there are all kinds of words to describe people who make things. And while we grapple with which word for who, who benefits when we distance ourselves from the reality that we are naturally creative and resourceful? What systems profit when we are separated from the culture, history, and language that comes from getting to know the materials that make up this world? Maybe there aren't answers to these questions, but I think they're worth sitting with. Okay, we are just about ready to close out. As you know, each episode comes with a song by the incredible Liz Delise, which I will play shortly. But first, the dedication. This episode is dedicated to the ancestors who never claimed the identity artist, but who made things with their hands, who modeled resourcefulness and creativity and reveled in the sheer joy of making. To the great aunts who made yarn dolls for all the kids, the weavers, the basket makers, the toaster fixers, the DIY CNC router builders. I guarantee you, you won't have to go too far back in your family tree to discover the people in your family who were material feelers. Consider taking time to ask your family members, record those stories, honor those ancestors, and dip a toe in their materials. You might be surprised. Thank you to Mark Hale for letting me record the tour of your mill and for being such a wonderful host. Thank you, Danielle, for sharing your love of weaving and fiber with me. Follow Danielle at Every Thread Hand Woven on Instagram, and if you are local to the Bay Area, sign up for a workshop at her studio. Thank you, Liz, the best creative partner I could ask for, and my sister Kelly for being my first listener and giving me honest, detailed feedback. Nothing like having a seasoned, sound-sensitive choreographer who has known me my entire life as my head editor. Next month, we'll be exploring a material that is all around us, alive, shifting in the wind, changing with the seasons. Maybe you've climbed it before, hugged it, burned it on a Friday night. You might be sitting with it right now or sleeping alongside it. Oh, see, look, now I'm doing a, a video. I did a video by accident. So say, give a message. Say a message, Grandpa. Message? No, give a message. Like, say... What do you want to say to the world? I love you. Oh, thank you, Grandpa. <laughs>